Thank you. Would you just give a round of applause to Stephanie? She's been wrangling us announcers for years and done a fantastic job. Thank you. Yes, my name is Tim. No, I'm not 12 years old. And no, I'm not a Don Johnson impersonator. But the youth, you are excused. So you guys can go ahead and go to your regular programming with Gina. She's going to hook you guys up with some truth. Mm-hmm. You can go. Like That's good. <laughs> um, but yeah, so my name is Tim. I've been married for seven years almost. And yes, I'm old enough to be married for almost seven years. And yes, I was older than 18 when I got married. So... I'm uh, old enough to dress myself as well. Picked this myself. Wife has a good enough sense of humor. She let me wear it. So Palm Sunday, figured palms would be a good idea. Still think that. <laughs> no, I didn't get dressed in the dark. Um, but anyway, my name is Tim. Married seven years. Wife is way cooler than I will ever be. No, I married up. She knows I married up. It's good. Um, but we were married in 2009. But two years before that, I had the opportunity and took it to live in Denmark. And if you've never been, go by all means. Uh, it's fantastic. Top three countries I've ever visited. Um, it's fantastically um, magical. But while I was there, I did have a job. I got to work festival security at different music festivals. Yes, this worked festival security. It's okay. It's okay. They respect the high-vis jacket that says security across the back. They don't. They really don't. Um, but one of the festivals I got to work at is the premier and largest rock and roll music festival in all of Europe. It's called Roskilde Festival, if you pronounce it like an American. Um, this isn't my mic. I don't want to get phlegm all over it, so I'm not going to do it like the Danes do. Uh, but the cool thing about working festival security is you get, to, you get to do the whole festival, but you don't have to pay the fee, and you get paid to do it. So I go, I don't speak very good Danish, let alone very much Danish. I speak about enough to say I don't speak Danish. And, but I have this job. And my friend Philip, who I call my brother from another mother, father, and country, uh, got us the jobs and stuff, got me signed up. And the genius didn't sign us up or get us into backstage security. So no, I didn't spend the festival making sure Pete Townsend had his water bottle or his cup of hot tea. I didn't, I didn't do that. We worked camp security. You go in, you camp all over. 100,000 people come to this festival and they camp. Now the thing about Danish summer, this happened first week of July. In Denmark, it's nothing like this during summer. Think like downpour. It just, it rains because they have things we call weather. And so water falls from the sky and it gets everything wet and muddy. And so I spent eight hour shifts and you don't get a lunch break and you don't get a 10 or at least nobody told us we did. And so we spent eight hours hiking through these campgrounds with the mud up to our knees and brilliant me bought Wellingtons, so rain boots that go to mid shin because I thought that would be enough. So I'm hiking my Boots are filling with mud, eight-hour-long shifts, and our job is to pick up trash from around the campsites, glorious, make sure the campers, we put out all of their fires because fires are illegal in this campground, but they light them anyway, and then there are two things you always have to watch out for. Svenska Olin, which is Swedish holes because Danes are racist against Swedish, 
I don't know why. Maybe it's the thousands of years of war. But they call them Swedish, Swedish holes. What they do is because it's so muddy, everything just kind of, when dirt, you can pile it. And then when it gets soaking wet, it just levels itself out. So you can dig a waist-deep hole and nobody could tell because it's so deep. So while you're walking through the pathway, you have to be careful. You look for the campers who look like they're trying not to look at you because there's a hole somewhere. And if you don't know the hole, you just fall right in. And then all the guys at the camp go, ha ha, you are so stupid, ha 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 ha. And then you feel like a moron. Or there's another one called a tripwire, which is exactly what you would imagine. Chain link fence, campground, walkway, tie the rope, put it in the mud, wait for some poor soul to be walking, not paying attention, and then you pull it, and it straightens, and they trip, and f- just covered in mud. Well, we went to this so stoked and excited. Like, it takes an hour to get from where we lived to the festival, and we're like, one hour till we're there. Oh, my gosh, I'm so excited. And then, like, 45 minutes. 45 minutes, we're so close. Half an hour comes. Yeah! And we're 15 minutes away. We get to within, like, kilometers, and you can start to smell the festival food. You're getting so excited. It smells so good. Oh, I'm so excited. I can smell it. And then you get there, and we're like, yeah! And then we do one shift, and it's miserable, and then we do our second shift the very next day, and it's equally, if not more so, miserable. It got to the point where I'm watching Red Hot Chili Peppers at like 1 o'clock in the morning on stage, and I wasn't impressed because it was too late to be impressed. I don't care that Flea plays the trumpet. I don't care. So I'm like, I can't do this. So I'm walking back to my camp. I'm trudging through the mud. I get to my camp. I lift up the tarp. The underside of the tarp is wet. So the rain has officially gone through the waterproof tarp. I unzip the waterproof tent through which the rain has also soaked. And then I climb into my not warm and toasty but cold and wet soaked sleeping bag to go to sleep. Well, Philip and I have had enough. So us and 10,000 other people basically evacuate this festival. The buses are overwhelmed. We can't get on. There's no way we're going to make it. We have to get to the train station before the train station closes and the last train leaves. So Philip, who as you can already tell is brilliant, we decide we're going to run to the train station. So we are running to the train station and he goes, Tim, put your thumb out. Maybe somebody will pick us up. That's a great idea. It's raining, pouring rain, lots of cars passing by. I'm in a foreign country. I should put my thumb out and try and hitch a ride. So I do. I put my thumb out, and lo and behold, car pulls up, door swings open, can't see inside. All I hear is, get into the car, quick. So I do. I jump in the car with strangers. Where are you going? We're trying to get to the train station. Can you get us there? Yeah, we're driving by it. When they say driving by it, they're not, like, they're not stopping there. They're driving by it. So we tuck and roll out of the car with our gear. We run down to the train. We're looking at our watches. Okay, we're safe. We've made it. The ticket, the ticket, turnstile, the ticket dispenser has shut down. It's past the ticket dispensing time, so they turn the machine off. We don't care. We're getting on the train. Like, what are they going to do? Fine us? Yes. So we get on the train. We, we make it through. We don't get fined. <laughs> Prayer is great. We get to the, the city, the national capital, Copenhagen's um, train station at the airport. And so then we get on. We try and get another ticket. It's closed again. So we just get on the train, whatever. Get to our city. Get out. Have to trudge all the way across the town to our house. All with the knowledge that in a couple days, we have to go back. Because if you don't fulfill your required time of service as security, you pay for the festival. So his dad is driving us back to the festival a couple days later, and it's like, oh, man, one hour till we're back in that. 
45 minutes. Oh, please slow down time. I hope there's a crash or something. Half an hour. Oh, you get 15, a couple kilometers away. Oh, I can smell Roskilde Festival. Oh, they didn't, they didn't change out the porta potties. Oh, we get back and we go again through another eight hour shift of sludging through mud and cold and wet miserableness. Why am I telling you this? Because I think, unfortunately, a lot of us walk in to Christianity, come to Christ with this expectation that it's just going to be an awesome, raging party. And we don't realize that a lot of times, a lot of time of the walk is involving walking through knee-deep mud with shin-high boots, sludging through, tough slugging. But you know what? It's worth it, and we just got to get through it. Today we're talking about expectations, and in Matthew chapter 21, if you'll open there, if you're using a a Bible from under the seat in front of you, it's page 826, we're going to look at a group of people who had some expectations that didn't match up with the expectations and the plan of what God had. This is, um, this is really exciting for me. This is the beginning of Holy Week in the Christian calendar, Um, but in the Hebrew calendar at this time, Passover is on the 14th of the month. So it's the first month of the year. This is when they start their year. The 14th is the Passover. Well, four days before that, on the 10th, is when they choose the lamb that they're going to slaughter for Passover. It's called the Paschal Lamb. This is the choosing and the celebrating of the lamb. So Christ is literally walking into Jerusalem, riding into Jerusalem on the day that the Hebrew people are choosing and celebrating the lamb that they're going to shed its blood so that the, that the death can pass over. So they're literally choosing their lamb. So Christ is driving, riding in with this mentality. So let us actually look at the text with this understanding, okay? We're going to start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Let's pray. Father, we are, are just so grateful that we get to be here and we get to learn more about you. Heavenly Father, many of us have come here with incorrect yet partially true understandings of who you are. Lord, some of us have come here with no understanding at all. And Lord, some of us have come here wishing other people could have a true, right, correct understanding. So Father, I pray that your presence would be made known here, that we would understand that you are present, that this time wouldn't just be an ordinary Sunday morning. It wouldn't just be another tick of the box. We went to church, fulfilled that. But Lord, that this would be a time of springboarding us into a new life of service to you. That this would be a correcting of our vision and our lenses through which we gaze at Holy Week. Lord, that this would be a time, not just holy because we've decided that to make it holy on the calendar, but that it would be holy because your presence is here. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he'll send them at once. I've added, I think I've properly entitled this, Christ Lord of the particulars. There are so many seemingly almost mundane or random occurrences or instances in these texts um, that we we have to, we can't just stand back and say, oh, it's just random. It's weird, funny how that worked out. But we have to understand Christ is Lord of all 
And so he can actually be in control of all of these. The first thing, um, he says, go into the village in front of you. The village that he's talking about from Bethphage right right after Bethphage on the way into Jerusalem is Bethany, the, the village of Bethany, where this is where he raised Lazarus from the dead. So there would be an audience, they would be familiar with this village, but no person could actually say, go into the village and immediately you're going to find a a donkey and a colt tied to her. Christ's ability to say this speaks to his omniscience, his all-knowing. He knows exactly that the second these two disciples walk in, they're going to find a donkey and a colt. Now, the thing about a donkey and a colt in this society, the horse was not really used that often. The horse was a tool for war. The donkey, on the other hand, was common transportation or a tool for work. They would bear the load. It would take things where they needed them. It would do the heavy lifting, the heavy dragging. So it's not uncommon to find a donkey or whatever. But Christ nails this and says, you're going to go in and immediately, you're not just going to find a donkey. You're going to find a colt tied to her. Bring them to me. So Christ knows the location of the donkey and the colt, but then he takes another step. He says, if anyone says anything to you, just say, the Lord has need of them and he'll send them immediately. So, Christ not only knows the location of the donkey, but he knows the inclination, we'll say, made that rhyme, haven't done that in the other two services, you're welcome. He knows the inclination of the owner's heart. He can control not just the location of a donkey and its colt, but he can control and actually incline the heart of the owner to release its property to the service of the Lord. He can incline the heart of the owner to say, you know what, yes, I own this, but he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Lend this to his service immediately. Just take it, okay? So the odds are this person probably knew who Christ was. You don't just raise someone from the dead in a village and nobody hears about it, right? So they probably are familiar with who Jesus is. They probably are familiar with the works and the words that he said and done. But the ability for them to say, oh, yeah, yeah, take this by all means. My plan, submit to yours. By all means, have it. Have at it. Take it. However long you need it, it's yours. The ability for Christ to be able to do that just speaks directly to his divinity and his godness. The ability to know the specific location and the heart of the owner. And he says they'll send them at once. So this guy is totally okay with doing this. And this brings me to my first observation and my first point. Christ will not call us to something that he won't carry us through. There are so many stories throughout history of people who are walking in obedience and have their needs met by a God who planned the meeting of the need months in advance. See, we serve a God who can meet the need before the need is felt. He can answer the prayer before the prayer is even prayed. He can do all these things and set it up so that by the time his servant who's walking in obedience gets to that point, the need is met. I think of Hudson Taylor, founder and director of Inland China Mission. He, uh, 1800s, long, long time ago, Hudson Taylor directing and and networking all of these missionaries in China. He could sit down one day and have a need for some, let's say, I'm going to do this in dollar amount. Nobody get on me about not using you on or whatever. But he can sit down and he can say, oh, man, yeah, this missionary, we need $256.50 for this missionary. Otherwise, his needs aren't going to be met. And then he gets a letter because this was the time of letters, guys. And he would get a letter from England from some guy And he'd open it up, and there'd be $256.50 and a letter written two months prior saying, hey, felt God stirring in my heart, sending this. Hope it helps. Right? God 
met the need before the need was felt. Or you think of somebody like George Mueller who ran in an orphanage that housed and cared for thousands of children in England, never once asking for financial help. They could sit down at dinner with nothing in the pantry, nothing in the kitchen, and obviously thus, nothing on the table. George could pray, God, we thank you for your bountiful um, abilities and how you've prepared this food for us. We praise you for your provision. And before you can even say amen, there's a knock at the door. One of the orphans goes, answers the door, and there's just a ton of groceries with a note saying, felt God telling me to buy groceries. Hope this helps. But the thing is, we have to take that step of obedience in order to experience that kind of provision. So Christ will actually, God is actually good about meeting the need before the need is even felt. And why do I talk so much about this? Because that's exactly what happens in the text. Hundreds of years before this occurrence in this text, this has already been set up to happen. Look at verse four. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Spoken through the prophet. The prophet is Zechariah. Hundreds of years before, Zechariah is talking and in Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, this is, this is what you have. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then he goes on in verse 10. I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. I'll set your prisoners free because of the blood relationship and the covenant I have with you. There's this idea of Christ does this to intentionally fulfill the promise of salvation. His followers would would have seen this. They would have known the imagery. They would have understood this. They would have studied this in, in their Hebrew school. And they would have seen this even in this day and age. They would have made that connection between this text and what Christ is doing. But I want to take a couple seconds just to look at the language because they, they actually kind of miss the point. The whole idea of, of the quote of, of verse 9 that we don't see in this text is he's coming and he's bringing salvation. He's coming and he's ending war. He's taking away all of your items of war, Israel. He's taking away all of your, he's taking your bow away. He's removing your chariot. He's coming and he's bringing a kingdom of peace. The king that they're celebrating seemingly in this text, when we see it, is not that king. They've got parts of nine, but they don't understand completely ten. It says, say to the daughter of Zion, here in verse five, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. So let's not miss this. There's no mistake. He is the king. This is kingly. This is Christ in his authority establishing his reign, but he's doing it in a completely different way than you would expect. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Humble. Some other translations translate this as gentle. There's imagery of meekness here. But don't mistake that for weakness. Christ is not weak and thus riding in on a donkey. Christ is in full kingship riding in on the donkey. Meek. Imagine a bowl in a china shop. Not like a spun on a thing ceramic bowl, but like a bowl, like Toro, Toro, bowl in a china shop that doesn't disturb one tiny little teacup. That's 
the image we have here of Christ. This immense authority, this incredible power and ability restrained under complete control, mounted on a donkey. You see, the donkey isn't an emblem or a symbol of weakness. It's not an emblem or a symbol of brokenness or of poverty. In this day and age, the, the donkey is an emblem of peace. The, the horse was reserved specifically for times of war. And so Christ comes riding in on a donkey. He's very intentional. Where have we seen this before? First Kings chapter 1, uh, verses 29 through 33 are, the, are the, the actual chunk. But I want us to look at this briefly. I'll read it to you. You can trust me. You could even write it in your notes and look it up later if you don't trust me. But the imagery here is, this is King David, and he's talking to Bathsheba. He says, as I swore, as the Lord lives, who's redeemed my soul out of every adversity, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me. He shall sit on my throne. So in verse 32, King David says, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. So the imagery here, um, backstory, Adonijah, one of David's sons, has set himself up to be the king and has tried to establish his throne and his reign. And David says, no, Solomon, my son, is king. He puts him on his own personal mule and takes him to get home. Now, Adonijah, seeing this, freaks because culture of the day says he is now a traitor. Solomon has all of David's strongmen at his, at his disposal. He can be completely destroyed, Adonijah. And so he freaks and he runs. But Solomon says, hey, if he, if he turns and comes back, no harm, no foul. I won't touch a hair on any of his family's head. And so peace is actually established even in that story. So here you have a picture of Solomon, the wisest king in history, one of the most successful kings in all of the Hebrew history and in the world, set up on his day being made king on a donkey. How much more fitting then is it that Christ would ride into Jerusalem riding on a mule? Something greater than Solomon is here. And I love, so all this is set up. We understand the imagery, the backstory. Verses six and seven are, I think, funny in a way, but also really cool. So he says all this, go get the donkey. If anyone takes issue, tell them the Lord has need of them. He'll send them at once. This is why we're doing this. And then in verse six, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. I love this. Guys, God doesn't call us to fully understand. He calls us to faithfully obey. You don't see the disciples like, no, that doesn't make any sense, Jesus. Why would we do that? Are you crazy? If you know there's a donkey and a colt there, you go get them. Then you could say, I have need of them. Why are you sending me? And I just, I see these two disciples, probably Peter and John, walking, going, this is probably like that one time he told us to feed those 5,000 men and women and children with those bread and that fish, crazy, right? And they're going back and forth about these times that God has just told them to do something. Christ has told them to do something, and, and they've, they've gotten over the, are you, are you serious right now? And they've just, Jesus says, do this, this is why we're doing it, and they go, you got it, and they're just walking. They don't understand but they obey. Guys, if we could fully understand God, he wouldn't be God. 
So we should be able to faithfully obey him. And another thing here too, some of us expect God's provision before his provocation. Y'all, he doesn't promise us any of that. It's a matter of stepping out in faith, understanding that he is God and can provide when he provokes. You don't see the disciples going, no, you send the donkey here if you're God, you can do that. Why do we have to go get in that socially awkward situation and possibly get arrested or killed? Just send the donkey here. No, they go and they obey. It's interesting to me. I think it's kind of convicting to me as well. So they go, they bring the donkey and the colt, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So now we move into the second half of the text, a welcome worthy of a king. This is the setup. Now we enter Jerusalem in verses 8 through 11. In verse 8, it says this. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road as he's entering, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the ground. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So first I just want to look at what they did. They go before him, or what the, yeah, they go before him, they go after him. They take their garments and they lay them in front of him. Don't worry, I'm not going to demonstrate my clothes are staying on. But this isn't just some random, oh, I'm caught up in the, in the amazingness of what's going on. Take, walk on my cloak. It, this is none of that. What this is is actually directly pulled from 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. It's a story of when Jehu is anointed king by Elisha's servants. What happens is Jezebel is just tyrannically reigning all over. And Elijah says, sends a servant and says, hey, anoint Jehu as king. He's going to be the king, and he's going to overthrow and kill Jezebel, and he's going to reign. So the, 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 the servant goes, and Jehu's holed up in a room with his homies, and not really, and he, he says, Jehu, can I, can I talk with you just real quick outside? Jehu goes, yeah, okay, or whatever. And so he goes out, and, and the servant then anoints Jehu as king and speaks this prophecy over him, and then bounces. And so then Jehu goes back into the room and all of his friends and people and the men there are like, hey, what happened out there? And he's like, oh, you know those prophet guys. Not, not, nothing really that big. It was, he's kind of weird. And like, no, really. Like, you look differently. Like, you look like somebody poured oil on you. What's the deal? And he goes, oh, he anointed me king. And then they immediately, it says, get up and take their garments off and throw it at his feet. And they cry out and blow trumpets and say, Jehu is our king. So the image we see here is one of subjection. These people are actually throwing their garments at Jesus' feet, saying, you are the king. And they take branches, and they throw these branches in there too. This is um, actually kind of taken from another festival called the Feast of Tabernacles. And what they're doing, these are actually the branches that they do are called hosannas. This is the imagery of victory and joy and, and liberty that they're throwing at the feet of Christ, ascribing this to his entry, ascribing this to who he is. So they're doing all of this. Their garments are at his feet in subjection. They believe that he is bringing victory, joy, and liberty. And then what they say, this is also, I think, very important. They cry out. The crowds that went before him and that followed him in verse 9 were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This is directly from Psalm 118. Save us, we pray, O Lord. 
Oh, Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Save us. Hosanna just means save us. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The interesting thing about this, though, is that earlier in Psalm 118, the writer says, if the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. Who or what can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. And then in verse eight, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. It's, they're quoting this. They're shouting this out. And yet, they want to set him up as a prince. They want to take faith and put trust in a man. And yet, a few verses later, this is the text that comes. Save us, Lord, we pray. So they cry out, Hosanna, save us now. May your kingdom have success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We believe that God has commissioned you. We believe that God has sent you. You are here on behalf of and in the name of the Lord himself. We believe that. Hosanna in the highest. May your kingdom be more prosperous than any kingdom. May your name be above every name. May your throne be above every throne. Hosanna in the highest. It's our duty as believers to desire and to pray for God's kingdom's success. Even these people who don't completely understand what's going on, as superficial as this praise is, still praise him. But I think of the model prayer. Most people call this the Lord's Prayer. It starts with, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then he says this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But how often do we as believers, one, even pray that? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And let alone, how often do we as believers, two, if we pray it, even mean it? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Hosanna, save us. Hosanna in the highest. I want your kingdom above all others. I want to be active in building your kingdom, not mine. So they're following him, they're leading him, they're throwing things at his feet in subjection and celebration of the victory and the joy they believe he's bringing. They're crying out for salvation to him. And then they enter the city of Jerusalem and we see the city's reaction. In verses 10 and 11. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So the whole city is shaken and curious. Another word for shaken that I I prefer um, is stirred. They were stirred. Wherever Christ is, men are stirred. Wherever Christ's presence is felt, society is shaken. And this is exactly what's happening in Jerusalem. And they respond with curiosity. Who is this? And I want us to look at the crowd's answer because it's true but it's still wrong. What? So Jerusalem, shaken and stirred by this man's entrance into their city and the celebration of who he is, turn to the crowd, these these Galilean uh, pilgrims, and they say, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now it's true. He was a prophet, and he was from Nazareth of Galilee. But 
He's the king and he's the high priest from God, most importantly. See, the crowd, they got it wrong. They got it partially right, but partially right can still be wrong. Their vision was too low. Their idea was too self-centered to understand who he truly was. But this is not the first time Christ has been confused. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, he's talking with his disciples and he asks them, hey, who do the people say I am? And they say, oh, you know, some people say you're a great prophet. Uh, You know, I think some people say Jeremiah. Some people say John the Baptist, which is confusing to me because chronologically, John the Baptist was alive while Jesus, what John the Baptist baptized Jesus. Okay, so we have that. And then Jesus hits them with this, this question. Who do you say I am? And if we've read this before, I think we all insert that dramatic pause of silence where all the disciples are like looking at each other. And then Peter, being Peter, just steps up and goes, well, you're the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. And Jesus doesn't look at Peter and go, hey, we got a thinking man over here. He brought his thinking cap today. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because you didn't come up with this, but God in heaven revealed this to you. And it's on this very confession that I'm gonna build my church And the church is going to go out, and the gates of hell won't even be able to stand up to this. But then at the end of that text, he he solemnly charges them to keep quiet about that fact, because his time had not yet come. But guys, in this text right here, his time had come. It's time to know who Christ truly is. And so the so what, the rubber, where does it meet the road? What does this have to do with us? Good story. You got a slightly annoying voice. What's the point of being here today? Who is Christ to you? Because how you view Christ is how you serve Christ. And how you relate to Christ dictates how you relate to others. And it's incredibly important to me that you understand who Christ really is. Because there was a time in my life I didn't truly understand. You see, I gave my life to Christ, became a Christian, and was baptized at a very young age. My dad was a pastor in a church. But I didn't come to the glorious, rich Christ, the king, the creator, the sustainer, and the redeemer, and the one who in the end will receive all the glory. I came to flannel graph Jesus. I came to the Jesus who died so that I could be happy. I came to the Jesus who wanted me to have an easy, comfortable life have success in school, even though I didn't want to do homework. Jesus loved me and he would get me A's, that kind of a thing. But you know how that bears itself out? In the fifth and sixth grade, when the church that my dad pastored split, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't believe that my God could allow that to happen. When when one of my mentors in the sixth grade died, I didn't know how to handle that. I didn't believe that God would let that happen. When I got in serious trouble in the eighth grade and then in the summer between eighth grade and high school and then when I entered high school and had to readjust to all of social stuff and all that kind of thing and try and refine my identity and then my last bastion of Christianity, my mentor, my final mentor passed away out of, after a brutal, horrific, slow and painful death, I questioned my faith. And then later on, when my favorite cousin was killed in a head-on collision with a drunk driver drag racing at two o'clock in the morning when he was riding his motorcycle home from work, I walked away. When I broke my back and found out I couldn't run anymore, which was how I was going to pay for college and where my identity was, I stepped away. I told my parents, I can't believe in this God. He's not real. 
Why would a God who loves me allow this to happen to me? So I walked away from the faith, but my parents, being my parents, and as strong-willed as they are, were, and will be, made me go to a Christian camp, and it was miserable. And there was this stupid prayer station thing. It was fine because it was one o'clock in the morning and it was an individual so I could just take 15 minute naps. But one of them was a foot washing. And you have to sit down and let people touch your feet. And there's a card that said, these people are going to wash your feet and read scripture over you. At the end of this, feel free to bless them. (laughs) I'll bless them with truth. They finished and I spent 45 minutes blasting these people about how God couldn't be real. How could this happen? How could this happen to me? How could this person leave me? How could I not have a good relationship with this person? How could I be addicted to this? How could I be dependent on that? How could I not have my identity here? How could this be taken away from me? And after about 45 minutes, I ran out of things to say. And Rebecca, was her name, looked at me. And she said, Tim, I agree. That God's not real. But that's not the God of the Bible. And so she spoke with the camp director, who I was there for a whole week after that, and he said, you're not doing anything. I'm challenging you. Read the entire Bible, and then tell me about the God of the Bible. And I was like, I can read. Let's bring it on. Let's go. So I spent the next week reading the Bible. And you don't get very far into this before you realize, we're the ones who messed it up. We wanted control. And when we get control of things, we break things. And I could see that in my own life. But I also saw that God made a way even then. And you continue to read and you see all this stuff where God wants his relationship to be righted and corrected and God wants people to come to know him for who he really is, but we keep messing it up. And then you get to the gospel and you find this Jesus who wasn't a happy-go-lucky guy, but he was somebody who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin, somebody whose whole family was upended by that and then lived a perfect life and was hated because of his claims of authority and deity and his fulfillment of prophecy, who died a death and became the ultimate high priest as we read in Hebrews so that all of humanity can come to God in a right relationship with him. And then you keep reading and then you get to the book of Revelation and you find out, you know what? Regardless of how I act and what I think, he's gonna get glory in the end. He wins. They cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, who is to come. And then a few chapters later, they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is. You know why? Because he came. And he establishes his throne forever. And then you read it again and you find these texts that say, hey, you have a right relationship with me? There are billions of people out there who don't. You need to do something about that. So now you're telling me that not only are you gonna get your glory, that not only are you God, but that ultimately you want me on your team. You want me enlisted in this. You want me to be a part of redeeming all of creation back to you? Sign me up. You're worth it. It doesn't matter the suffering that I'm gonna go through, that I've gone through, that I'm going through. It doesn't matter because God, ultimately, you are worth it. I've seen the God of the Bible for who he is. Ultimately, I pray the same for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we just create these images. I remember the quote, in the beginning, God made man in his image. And ever since then, we've been trying to return the favor. Heavenly Father, would you strip away all these falsities of who you are that we've created, that we could come face to face, not just on a Sunday morning, but on a daily, hourly life basis, to see you for who you are and who you want us to be in light of that. Would you guide us and direct us? Would you embolden us and strengthen us? Would you enable us by your spirit? 
to actually live that truth and that conviction. It's in your name we pray. Amen.